Death is considered the last great adventure. Humans have been curious about what happens after we die for millennia. And today, we're unpacking everything you've ever wanted to know about kicking the bucket. The different definitions of death, the stages of death, and what near-death experiences can tell us about a potential afterlife. All this to answer the rude question, what's it like to die? That's what you're in for today on Impolite Society. You're listening to Impolite Society with Laura and Rachel. Well, hello and welcome to Impolite Society, the podcast that digs into the questions you cannot ask in the final round interview for a business analyst job at a mid-sized employer when HR asks, so do you have any questions? (laughs) I'm Rachel. And I'm Laura. And what's the most inappropriate question you ever got in your recruiter day, Laura? I didn't get a lot of inappropriate questions when I ask, do you have any questions? But there's definitely been scenarios where they have hit on me before. That's always been a little fun. During a phone screen? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're just really risking it. They're risking it. Interesting. So how does one pick up a person during a a phone screen? What does that sound like? You just ask questions. It's like, oh, you know, are you single? Uh, Where do you live? Yeah. Oh, would you be interested in, you know, getting together sometime? (laughs) They asked if you were single? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's wild. Yeah, well. Agency recruiting is the wild, wild west. Yeah, that would be wild. And you know, in their in their mind, they're just like, I got to shoot my shot. What a great story would this be? Like, <laughs> for my wedding toast, to be like, she found me on LinkedIn. I didn't get the job, but I got the girl. Oh, <laughs> lame. Well, I have a really good question for you today that can top being hit on during a phone screening. <laughs> and let me just say... I'm so happy to be doing the research for our topic today. I actually asked Laura to switch so that I could have this topic because I had been doing a whole lot of sexy topics and I was burnt out. You had. You did a lot. You did all kinds of sexy ones. And so, yeah, you deserve a break. Definitely. To quote my hero and personal icon, Liz Lemon, the word lovers bums me out unless it's between the words meat and pizza. (laughs) And that's, of course, a reference to our favorite 30 Rock and our queen, Liz Lemon. Lemon. But I'm happy to report that I've made it through and I've come out the other side and I'm returning to my comfort zone, my safe space, a topic I'd love to research all day long, death. Wait, what? Most people love to talk about sex and they hate to talk about death. We got the flippity flop. Yeah, this is great. This is the most uplifting research I've done since 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Feeling good. Talking about death. And I actually feel uplifted. I felt like it's an inspiring message today, guys. So get on board because let's be honest, we're all standing on the cusps of World War III. Possibly. Death. Might be a little bit more on our mind today than it was in years past. And with COVID. We're all basically standing in our graves. We've been digging our graves for the last five million years, humanity. Well, you start digging your grave the second you're born. They hand you a little tiny shovel and they say, get to work, kiddo. Soon as you're born, start the business of dying. Like I said, uplifting episode today. But as that gloom and that mortality begins to press and weigh on you, 
you might be asking yourself, what does it feel like to die? And this is very much a topic I'm curious about because I've gone on the record to say, I hope I am very much aware enough that when the time does come, that I am conscious and present of mind enough to understand what's happening. I not so much. I'd rather be like, one minute you're there, one minute you're gone. Boom, dead, bye. But even still in that kind of moment, you might still experience some of the stuff. And we'll get into that as we dig into the research. But, you know, I just really want to cross out my bingo card of human experiences. And I'm sure dying has got to be on there somewhere. That's true. You don't remember your birth. So least you can do is remember how you go out. Well, you can't remember it after the fact. Says who? <laughs> we'll get into that <laughs> in the research. Yes. Okay. So what is dying like? It might seem simple. But there's actually a lot of ways to answer it. But the whole core of it is based on how you define death, which surprisingly, there's variations. Really isn't death when you're really dead below the waist. You're just not interested anymore, in which case um, I've been dead for a few years. That's not how the encyclopedia. Encyclopedia. <laughs> I like you know what I am somebody who when I get hyped up and excited like when I talk about topics that interest me I get mush mouth so naturally give me a microphone am I right <laughs> okay so the Encyclopedia Britannica in its first edition it defined death as the separation of the soul from the body which this definition it's pretty hard to pin down especially when you have a patient in your hospital bed or on your operating table because. I don't know how you describe a soul leaving a body. Is it, you see it at the operating table. It's just like, go, 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 go. Yeah, it rises up and it's got wings and a halo and it's strumming a harp. harp. Yeah. Just like in the cartoons. That's when you know. Time of death, uh, 852. This patient hasn't risen from its body yet. Keep trying. <laughs> Keep fighting. They're a fighter. Well, our definition of death has changed a lot. So we look at it through a little bit more of a scientific lens. Even still, while death is one of the few things that every human who's walked the earth has in common, and that's, of course, along with the other great human experiences of being born and thinking of the perfect comeback days after you've had that fight. Fuck, I should have said this. God damn it. But the idea of death and how we define it can actually be subjective and a little bit of a point of contention because the science community has rallied around three different definitions or levels of death. This surprised me. I did not know that there were three, but reading the definitions, this all makes sense to me. But it was just a surprising concept to think that there was more than one way to define it. It seems so final and yes. so obvious. Yes. But... It gets dicier, especially when it comes to modern medicine. So that first, most biological kind of death is called cardiopulmonary death, or just the stopping of the cardiovascular system. This means that death is 100% biological, and when the body cannot support itself anymore, it dies. Seems pretty simple, mm -hmm. right? Enter modern medicine. Through the marvels of modern medicine, we can push blood through the body. We can force lungs to expand and contract. And we can replace vital organs when needed. So while this all factors into death, it's 
certainly not the sole determinant anymore. Yeah, because your heart can stop and is no longer pushing oxygenated blood around, but there are ways to circumvent that. You can get a heart transplant or bypass where for a certain period of time, they can put you on a machine to circulate your blood. They can put in a ventilator to breathe for you. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of things to extend life beyond this cardiopulmonary death. Exactly. And so when they are extending that life, what are they trying to preserve? Well, that, of course, is our brain activity. So this is where we kind of live today when we look at death. There is a rallying behind the two levels of brain death. The first being whole brain death. Not that you have a hole in your brain and that makes you dead, (laughs) but that would probably make you dead. Well, not always. There's some interesting stuff where people can have like pipes through their brain and still be fine. Yeah, and come out with a better personality. He was a worse personality. That's the classic case. The guy started like peeing in corners and like swearing he had no impulse control. This is like a famous scientific study. The railroad? Yeah, the railroad guy. The spike in his head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He started pissing in corners and like trying to hump people and stuff. Oh, I didn't read those studies. That's crazy. I've only ever heard it anecdotally. But I bet there are some people that we both know who might have a better personality with the spike in their head. I can think of a couple. (laughs) And I'm sure you can too, listeners. But whole brain death, this means your brain has stopped working. All of it, every single piece of it, all the way down to your reptilian brainstem. And this is where you can see folks who are... stuck in that vegetative state for decades and decades because even while they are unconscious they can't function their personality is gone because there is some tiny activity in the brainstem right so that enables their heart to pump their lungs to keep working everything is functioning but any higher level cognition beyond those basic functions are gone completely gone it could be something as small as like a reflex right like if you poke them they flinch or something like that. They can also monitor your brain, too, to see brain waves. Mm-hmm. So even if you're fully comatose and you're not moving, if there's kind of electricity flickering around in there, you are not legally dead. Mm-hmm. You're alive. Yep. So that comes to the other kind of death, which is called high brain death. The first two definitions, that cardiopulmonary and the whole brain death, they really look at death as a biological function. So your body can't sustain itself. Your whole brain has powered down. It's very much biological. But the high brain death looks at death through more of a cognitive lens. This one says life is about being sentient. And if you irreversibly lose function of that higher brain, the brain that makes you you, then that is when you are considered dead. To what level, though? And that's where things get dicey, right? I think there might be something a little bit more to it with the higher brain death. Like you said, we keep people alive who are unconscious, who don't necessarily have any ability to come back mm-hmm. and and be themselves. So the loss of who you are and your personhood It's definitely a kind of death in some way. But the cardiopulmonary and the whole brain death is the definition that is embraced by U.S. law and the World Health Organization to this day. So essentially it just says it's the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory function. So your heart isn't pumping, you're not breathing, or it's the irreversible cessation of all function of the entire brain. 
Which then won't keep your heart pumping because if your brain is dead, then your heart won't pump. Yeah. You can't really have one while the other one's happening, from what I can tell. You can't have B without A. Some kind of combination. It's working in tandem to make you extra dead. (laughs) Dead times a thousand. (laughs) And apparently, I didn't know this, our definition of death is a very high standard. Like this is not a low threshold to get over. To hit both of these, you have to be pretty dead, which is either good or bad, depending on how you look at it. I think it's pretty good. You know that you're definitely down for the count before they start ripping you open and taking your corneas and giving them to people. But then again, if you're somebody waiting for those corneas, well, cornea is a bad example because you can live without your corneas. (laughs) But if you're on the heart transplant list and you're waiting for a heart and, you know, somebody who's got a machine pumping it for them and they have had that for the last several decades, you know, you might be like, okay, maybe that is uh, time to call it for them. Yeah, it's not their call to make. It's their family's call to make. So this is all relevant, right? We're not just defining death to be pedantic here. This is relevant because having a shared definition of when you're dead is going to affect what it feels like to reach that state. So we just had to establish our common definition of death. And also, it's kind of fun to poke out that it's not as concrete as one would think. You have to be like dead times three. You have to be very dead. So don't worry, folks. We're not going to harvest your organs just yet (laughs) because you are going to need to be biologically dead. And that's what we're going to look at today. What does it feel like to biologically die, for your body to shut down, for your brain to stop working? And I am going to walk you through this biological process right after this break. So the biological process of dying, we're talking about brain death. I can safely say that I have experienced this in watching one of the Oscar nominees, Power of the Dog. It, it was the most boring movie that I had ever, ever watched. You had brain death? Yeah. Your, your brain died. Podcast over. Just going to tell us firsthand. <laughs> Well, in addition to watching, what is it? Brain dog? Dog? (laughs) Sorry, I already lost it. I keep thinking Isle of the Dog. Power of the Dog. It was fucking awful. Power of the Dog. In addition to watching the Power of the Dog, there are a lot of ways to die. Very many ways to die. Some are better. Some are worse. But like the law says, death occurs when the heart stops pumping, meaning blood isn't flowing and oxygen isn't getting delivered to key organs. Like your brain, which apparently needs a ton of oxygen, like needs the most oxygen out of anything in your body, but also does not keep a lot of it on reserve, much like my giant new SUV that we bought. Needs a lot of gas, really bad at keeping that tank full. (laughs) It's a greedy bitch. Save some oxygen for the rest of us, brain. But at the end of the day, all these roots are just different ways of stopping that oxygen from getting where it needs to go. Whether it's a hole in your head, bleeding out internally, or your body getting so mushed up that it no longer can function at all. That's also another way of just really stopping your oxygen from getting where it needs to go. Which is, of course, as we talked about in the definitions of death, your brain. Lots of ways to die. We don't need to go through every single one of them. (laughs) No, that would be a very boring podcast. And there's a TV show on the Discovery Channel, I believe, that already covered it, A Thousand Ways to Die. But that's the thing. They went too broad. We're specific. We're savvy content creators. (laughs) We like to deliver content that is perfectly tailored to you, 
our audience. So we are going to tell you exactly what happens for the way you are most likely to die. Like when my stomach explodes after I've eaten like five Papa John's pizzas like that. No, wait. Uh, we covered that. Oh, yeah. Actually, that probably won't happen. Yeah. You probably won't die. Just always be sure to chew your food. Because if you have those big chunks, if you eat like a whole garlic knot that might get lodged and block your esophagus, preventing you from burping or regurgitating the five pizzas. So just be sure to chew. You know, just put your pizza in a blender and drink <laughs> it that way. It's probably the best way anyway. Putting it in the way it's going to come out. You know, it's not exciting. I, I am psychic. I did consult my crystal ball. And I do know how you are going to die. Or at least Tell I me. have a pretty good guess. Tell me. I can't wait. I can't wait to know. Well, here it comes. Because all World War Three jokes aside, the vast majority of us, like nine out of ten of us, are going to die from natural causes. And that's especially going to be happening at an advanced age. So I'm going to be old and I'm going to die peacefully. This is good news. Thank you, Crystal Ball Rachel. You're welcome. Because whether that's from disease or fragility, which is aka known as old age. Sometimes your body just gets so old, it shuts down. It just can't keep going. Well, yeah, yeah. Your organs have an expiration date. It's like, nope, don't work no more. And I'm really working on pushing my liver to it every <laughs> single time we record a podcast. So essentially, our body at some point is just going to shut down, whether that's from the old age or the disease, our organs just stop working, our heart slows down, and our body just eventually winds down fades away it's a beautiful part of life you gotta make way got get rid of the old to make way for the new just the way it is and there are two main stages of dying and which actually comes to like this really cool universal symbioticness of the stages of death almost mirror the stages of labor of giving birth where we have a couple phases and the timing of the phases follow each other it's just kind of nice. I thought it was like a nice bookend. So what is it? The... It's uh, non-active labor and active labor. Those two yes. different stages. So I guess two things for death as well. Yeah. So you can look at death in a couple different stages. One is like the weeks leading up to it, which is a gradual process, which is, again, similar to labor. Your body's starting to get ready for this big change that's coming. Mm. So in this first stage, it usually happens over a couple of weeks, could be a couple of days. And what's happening now is your body's systems are beginning to slow down. Your heart, it beats a little bit more slowly. It doesn't beat as strongly. And that means that less oxygen is being delivered to your brain and the rest of your body. And that includes your digestive system, which that also starts winding down as well. Everybody knows that they get new skin cells, right? They regenerate mm -hmm. constantly. Like Wolverine every day. Except for when you're dying, then they stop regenerating. And so your skin might thin and it might get a little bit of discoloration. But what can you expect? That's what's happening biologically. What does it feel like at this stage? Well, the one thing people can say confidently is don't expect to be hungry. Your body is not going to be needing food. The digestive system slowing down. And eating itself could actually be a little bit dangerous. Like your saliva is not working. Your uh, esophagus isn't pumping. So if you try to eat, you might end up choking, that kind of stuff. Your body knows better. It's like, I don't need this shit. We're, uh, we're on the way out, guys. <laughs> yeah. Don't save that for somebody who needs <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Looking out for the, the tribe there. Mm, don't need it. Which, oh, man. Okay. If I cannot and do not desire to eat, then please 
take me behind the barn and give me the lassie treatment because I'm done. Like I've lost my life well, at that point. Food is for life. a few weeks or a few days. So you use that time to get everything in order, make your amends. Well, definitely. Because that is something that people say in this phase that anecdotally people will know when it's coming and that will kind of motivate them to try to resolve any unfinished business or bring family close to them. Mm-hmm. I believe it. You just feel something different, especially if you're old and you can feel how your body is moving, how, uh, yeah, uh, not surprising. Well, shoot, my husband's grandma's been trying to die for decades, so I think that old people just always think they're dying. <laughs> if you just think you're dying every day, one day you're going to be right. True. But in addition to not being hungry, trying to maybe get your final affairs in order, you might also lose some control of your bladder and bowels, which... Oof. It's just insult to injury at that point. Luckily, you won't be eating a lot, so. (laughs) Maybe it's just like labor again. Exactly. It might be a gift that the universe is actually giving you by being like, oh, mm -mm, don't eat that. Don't eat that (laughs) Papa John's. It's going to come back in the most spectacularly embarrassing manner on your deathbed. Just skip it, sister. Just skip it. (laughs) Yeah. It's not worth it. But you might feel some pain depending on what's actually causing you to die. But luckily in our day and age, a lot of that can be treated by medicine. Mm -hmm. Morphine is very common at end of life. It's become a big part of it. Mostly what you will be feeling in this first stage of dying is just sleepy, which that's kind of nice. This is all just giving me flashbacks to all my grandparents that have died (laughs) because I've been through all this. And also with the morphine, too, that sometimes it can be bad. They give them too much too soon and they lose out on like the last kind of lucid days that they could have. And it's distressing for family members. The whole thing is all about family members and making it as least distressful as possible. Assisted suicide is illegal, technically, but doctors or hospice, you know, end-of-life professionals will sometimes overdo the morphine, whether on purpose or accident, mostly on purpose, to try to make the person more catatonic during the actual process of dying Mm -hmm. because the dying process, as we'll get into in this next stage can be a little upsetting to watch somebody you love go through it. Mm -hmm. So effectively, trying to keep somebody from scaring their loved ones and you're shortening their life by a couple breaths, Mm -hmm. that's already kind of like assisted suicide. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. The process of dying is, it's complicated. Who would have thought it was so complicated? (laughs) But if you've made it through the time of being sleepy, you're going to eventually enter the second stage of dying, which is called active dying this is when you're running around the neighborhood you got your new lululemons and you're like wow i feel great drinking a lot of green juices you're very active which this phase of death went through a rebranding because (laughs) it used to be called the agonal phase that doesn't sound good Yes, comes from the word agony. So they're like, oh, we need to make this a little bit more positive. What can we call it? Active, active dying. We're actively dying. When you are actively dying, this is the last day-ish of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the word agony. But what we can tell, the agony has to do more with how our loved ones are experiencing this phase than the person who's actually experiencing it. Because in this part of the dying process, breathing becomes a lot harder. So you might gasp. You might struggle or labor to breathe. 
and you might make a sound called the death rattle, which is similar to the sound of clearing your throat. It has to do with phlegm and congestion in your lungs and trachea that normally you clear out, but when your body isn't working as well as it normally is, the congestion stays in there. And, and you don't have enough power to like power through it, through all that gunk in yes. there. Yes. Like when you have a chest cold, it's that kind of rattle or that kind of feeling Mm -hmm. deep down with it. And those who work in the dying business in the hospitality, not hospitality, (laughs) the the hospice Hospice, business, they'll tell you that once you hear that rattle, you've probably got about 24 hours or less left. Yep. That's when family makes all the phone calls and say, this is it. And then they they get, get your ass here. Get your ass here. Yeah. And this time you might be feeling a little agitated and that's simply because you might have trouble catching your breath, which is unsettling for anybody. Yeah. If you're having trouble breathing, you're going to be a little antsy, but it's not all bad in this stage. You might get a burst of energy. Folks will sit up and be themselves and converse as normal for short periods in this last 24 hours. So that might not be so bad. You may also get visitors of the otherworldly variety. It's very common for those who are actively dying to hallucinate and start speaking to people who are not in the room, whether they aren't there because they're just not physically here or they're not there because they have already passed on. That doesn't sound so bad. This is the one place that I got emotional in doing the research and I might get emotional in talking about it because I'm not a religious person. I don't necessarily believe there is an afterlife. But this piece was very comforting to me because, you know, even if I don't get to spend eternity with my loved ones, I'll at least get to see them all again one last time. Yeah, I wonder what that is. I wonder if that's like the brain trying to tie up loose ends or whatever the case may be. But who doesn't want to visit with their old life? (laughs) Well, yeah, everybody who's important to you who might not be there anymore, Mm -hmm. get them all together. All of your pets, get them in the room. You don't have to vacuum after ghost cats and ghost dogs. (laughs) Sylvia Brown, the psychic, will be like, what is this, Noah's fucking ark in here? I mean, I'm going to have a lot of animals. What a over the course of my life. <laughs> so, yeah, that was kind of one of the pieces that I thought was comforting and nice about this research today. But as you progress from there, your body, it'll start to get colder. Your blood flow slows down and you'll start to lose your senses. And the research says that the last two senses that you will hold on to is your sense of hearing and your sense of touch. So I can't predict exactly what's going to be happening to each of us as we experience this last great adventure of humanity. But my hope for you, Laura, and for everybody listening is that what you're feeling is the hand of a loved one and that you're hearing their voice comforting you. That's what everybody deserves. So as you enter your final hours, you'll lose consciousness if you haven't already. And once you reach that final stage... You might actually shed one last tear, and it's called the lacrimal mortis, a single tear that kind of rolls out of your eye at the time of death, and science has no idea why we do this. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, it's bonkers. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows, but you do, usually out of your right eye. Huh. It just kind of rolls down your cheek. Weird. And then once you see that, bye. And that's death. Thanks for all the fish. This is a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's just what science has to say. But fuck science, am I right? Science has never looked the Grim Reaper square in the face and come back to tell the tale. But some people, they have. So after the break, we are going to hear about what death is like from people who have danced with the Grim Reaper themselves. Folks who have went to the other side and come back to tell the tales. We're going to see what they have to say instead of that stupid science (laughs) after the break. Well, actually, uh, death can only be categorized by active and inactive death and blood pressure and... Science, get out of here. Get out of here, science. Because, listeners, are we going to believe what a bunch of fucking nerds have to say about death? Or are we going to ask those bad asses who climbed out of Hades' gate and returned to tell their tale? A lot of best-selling books, so people are interested. They sure do. Because, yeah, we all want to know what dying's like. That's why we listen to this podcast. So near-death experiences, they are, I mean, pretty self-explanatory. These are (laughs) situations where someone is very close to dying or is sometimes actually scientifically dead. Well, actually, you're dead. And then they're resuscitated by one form or another. Maybe it's by medicine or medical advances or someone just pulling your drowning ass out of the pool, slapping you on the back. That's the one that I've heard is the most related to near-death experiences. And also the longest people have technically been dead is in uh, drowning in pools because the cold water preserves the body and so it's easier to start back up you have less brain damage because lack of oxygen will cause brain damage but it's also the cold is counteracting that damage and that decay even in like minutes and that's why that has the longest interim of being dead and brought back you keeping yourself on the ice block you know just nice and chilled ready whenever you're ready to come back to life we'll break you out of the fridge pop you in the microwave bing bang boom (laughs) back to life Isn't that a crazy story in St. Louis where that kid was dead for like 20 minutes or something ridiculous? Oh, yeah. He was dead a long time and they made a Christian movie about him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never saw the movie, but I remember the story. But it it was longer than 20 minutes. Like, it was I think it was 48 years he was dead. (laughs) And then they brought him back to life. And he was like, what the fuck? It was was it three days. Well, I did hear that somebody did do that once. Jesus? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 15 minutes. Was he legally dead or was he just like Missouri dead, which is like he, he hasn't kept down his moonshine? So he was underwater for 15 minutes and first responder tried to revive him for 45 minutes. They got a heartbeat and walked out of the hospital 16 days later. I bet that was some cold water. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was a lake, frozen lake. Ah, that's why you A, don't walk on frozen lakes. Yeah. And B, if you're on a walk on a lake, only walk on frozen lakes. <laughs> Good life hack. <laughs> if you're going to drown, only drown in the most frigid water. So yes, drowning is one way that is very commonly associated with these near-death experiences, as well as like heart attacks, traumatic brain injuries, as well as people who have had falls or, or going into surgery, which my kind of theme is it's like a lengthier one. You don't get shot in the head and then get brought back. 
or <laughs> you know usually. even if you did get shot in the head and they could bring you back because not everybody who gets shot in the head dies but it all happens so fast so I feel like all of these kind of have like a length of time there's something you can get saved uh, from okay I see what you mean like the process of drowning is longer the process of falling is longer yes you have time to think about what's happening your brain has time yeah, if only for a few seconds yeah it like has the ability a car yeah. accident happens boom blink of an eye and people mm-hmm. get saved from car accidents all the time but you just don't have enough time to process what's happening got it yeah which is my theory but anyways but the funny thing about near-death experiences is that they might seem easy to dismiss but they're pretty consistent across experiences and that's not just people today that's across cultures and throughout time the earliest recountings of near-death experiences are actually by socrates plato and even our good friend pliny and they share a lot of the similar traits that people going through near-death experiences have today. I like that because it goes to show that either it has something to do with like just how the human body works. It's not an individual experience. It's something that's pretty universal as far as like this is how the body shuts down or also points to an afterlife and some greater experience on the other side that is true for every individual. So I love consistency in any form. (laughs) Well, yes. Yeah. And I mean, one would say that all of our cultures are kind of derived back from ancient Greek. So there could be some similarity in thought there, too. Or like you said, it's a biological process, which we've then experienced. People have talked about. And so then Mm -hmm. it's kind of shaped our religion and our religious beliefs about what happens after we die. The perception of things change enough over Socrates to today. There would be some change, in my opinion. Nobody's talking about going to Odin's drinking hall in Valhalla. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, maybe the Vikings did. We just never heard about it. But while they're not going to the hall of the heroes in Valhalla, what are these people experiencing? Well, let me tell you. I'm dying to know. Yep, dying. (laughs) Aha, wordplay. Don't get too antsy. Okay, so what's it like to die according to somebody who's actually been legally dead? The first thing that is likely to happen is that regardless of whatever trauma you're experiencing, whether that's drowning or having chest pains of your heart stopping, the pain and the stress of the situation is just kind of going to fade away. And you're going to be hit with a overwhelming sense of peace and tranquility. You uh, also might notice at this time that you are feeling a little bit separate from your body. This is where those out-of-body experiences might factor in. You might Mm -hmm. be in the room watching the doctors trying to resuscitate you. You might be on the beach watching the Baywatch lifeguards run into the water to pull you (laughs) out. But you're becoming more of an observer as opposed to an active participant in what's going on. Accepting. Yeah. You're just kind of like, okay, this is happening. And in addition to that, some of the survivors of this will describe a visual phenomenon in this time. So that could be the classic bright light while others might experience flashes of vivid scenes or memories of their lives, a.k.a. the, my life flashed before my eyes. And it was just ice cream and pizza and cookies and cats. So the moments that mattered. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, 
that's kind of nice though, right? If even whether it's pizzas, cats, or your first steps, or some people described random moments from their childhood that they had no conscious memory of. They just huh. it was just kind of cool, kind of a fun little adventure. Kind of tour through your life. Yeah. A survivor of one of these near-death experiences explained the flashes of the memories to a reporter who then wrote, They came at high speed, almost all at once, in a wave, and yet he could process each of them individually. In fact, he was able to perceive everything around him, the rush of the water, the sandy bed, all brilliantly distinct. He could hear and see as never before, he recalled later. This makes me think of time being non-existent, like existing somewhere beyond time. And that's a crazy thought of just how that would even be possible. I mean, I've heard in high adrenaline moments that time seems to slow down because you're processing more frames per second than you normally can. And that's why when you're in a car accident, things seem to go really slowly. Mm. Your eyeball and your brain are deciphering more information than normal. It kicks into super, super high gear. I can't imagine how high a gear your brain would have to go into for you to be experiencing different parts of your life all at once and not get completely fucked up. Overwhelmed. (laughs) Time exists. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Time exists very... Uh, distinctly and linearly here on planet Earth. So (laughs) that's crazy to think of. Yeah, to think what that experience might be like. That's pretty powerful stuff to think those moments feel real and are happening on top of each other simultaneously. But this is where I invite our good friend, science. Science. I thought we were done with that nerd. I know. Well, I'm going to invite them back in and they're going to come in and they're just going to ruin the party that we're having. Well, actually. Well, actually. So science attributes many of the sensations of the near-death experience to the dying brain shutting down. As mentioned before, our brain needs that oxygen. Our blood carries oxygen to our brain, powers everything on. So think of your brain like a big city, and each of the neighborhood is kind of on its own electrical grid, and they're Mm -hmm. all powered up and running. And that electricity is supplied to those neighborhoods by your body's power plant, bump, bump. Bump, bump. Your heart pushes all the blood to your brain, brings the oxygen. So when the heart starts pumping and your blood slows down, the grid starts to come down as well. And it's not all lights out at once. They slowly, one by one, start powering down. Neighborhood by neighborhood. Yes. While our brain is slowly dying, it does what it does best. The thing our species was designed to do. It tells a story. It creates a narrative of what is happening to you in that moment. And that narrative is shaped by a combination of that person's experiences, memories, and culture. Essentially, science is saying that we're all seeing that tunnel with a bright light at the end simply because our brain is told that that is what should be happening. So it's bringing in our memories, our culture, our beliefs about what death should be like, and that's shaping our deaths. Yeah, it's it's certainly very possible. I think that because it's been so consistent throughout time, I think maybe that's a little bit more circumspect. I don't know of many cultural 
truths as extended from ancient Greece. And in this case, it could be a cart or a horse situation, right? So yeah. did we shape our dying experience based on religion or did religion take the experiences of people who have totally. died and come back? And that's what shaped our experience. And also, you know, about how people process this experience of your life flashing before your eyes and i've heard before that it's the electricity in your brain not shutting down but going a little bit crazy like synapses firing that yeah haven't fired in a really long time that one i feel like maybe is a little bit more apropos with the memories that you didn't even know that you had coming back that seems yeah it's like that movie where you have all your memories stored in deep storage and all of a sudden they're flying everywhere and different ones are falling into the projector And those kind of memories coming out and how people describe feeling multiple things happening at once are really long experiences. Neurologists attribute these flashes that are happening to us existing in a world between consciousness and REM sleep. So you know how a dream can feel like it's forever, but it's only happening over the course of a couple seconds. I always thought that dying must feel like going to sleep or at least like passing out. Because passing out feels like going to sleep in like super fast forward. And passing out is your brain being deprived of oxygen. So it isn't the worst thing in the world, honestly. No, I when I it. did it, it was not fun. I got like nauseous and hot and the world Well, went yeah, to I did white. too. But that moment of blacking out was very much so like going to sleep and fast forward. It felt like sinking underwater very, very fast. And that experience as itself is not unpleasant yeah you might have even felt some euphoria while it was happening maybe no not euphoria it was like what's happening oh god (laughs) and then like falling underwater and then coming back up and being like oh shit what the hell just happened (laughs) yes well some people will say that dying feels good there is some euphoria to it and the neurologist will say that feeling comes from as you talked about that final push of adrenaline that's flooding us so you get a little bit of a high out of it too again a lot of pluses here i mean there's some negatives we're talking about bowels yeah we're talking about choking on food but what's going on in your brain seems to be generally pretty good because that's another really comforting tidbit that no matter what you believe in happens after you die, those who have experienced near-death experiences, they describe it as a pretty positive spiritual experience. And while science may never really understand why exactly our brains perceive its final moments as blissful, we can all be at least grateful that when our time comes, the universe has given us this one little tiny kindness in the grand scheme of things. But I did look up prior to this episode because I was curious that if other people have had negative, very negative near-death experiences. Yes. And they have. They do. Yes. So it's not all positive. I think it also comes into your mindset going into the situation. And again, back to that personal experiences your culture and your beliefs if you believe that you're not living the way you're supposed to be or you're not living an ethical life then sure if you carry a lot of guilt your brain might fire that up in its last couple seconds and show you images of hell of being tormented Mm -hmm. for eternity and those kind of things but again the good news here is i believe that this is a afterlife of your own creation so you can as long as you believe you're gonna have a great afterlife 
your brain will fire that up for you. The ones that I read, it was a kind of a mixture that there were some people that described basically everything that you described here, but they had a different reaction to it. It wasn't blissful acceptance. It was like, fuck. They recognized like something crazy is happening to me right now. I don't like it. This is freaking me the fuck out. And then the other side of that were people who, like you said, experienced torment in their near-death experience. And I don't have all the answers, certainly, but I like the fact that if there is something on the other side, that most of us has experienced this good side. And so it makes me think of those stupid preachers that sit there and talk about death and doom and gloom and God's going to cut you into a million pieces, which I literally heard a preacher on the street say this week, God will cut you into a million pieces. And I was like, what? I started laughing when I heard it. (laughs) But I'm just saying it gives me hope to think that if there is something on the other side, it's usually going to be a good thing. We're not all being sent to hell. That's what kernel of, of hope that gives me. I'm not a theological person, but eternal damnation is a hell of a punishment for something yeah, right? us little apes are running around on this planet doing. <laughs> I can't, it's hard to fathom what would qualify so you bad. for yeah. eternal damnation. And I Agreed. guarantee you, it's not touching yourself. So, dear kids. <laughs> what? Please. It's not? Fire away. <laughs> Grow them hair out of those palms. Exactly. And the good news is, Laura, you can get a little bit of heaven here on Earth without having to fire away. Because while we can't explain what exactly these experiences are, neurologists point to the similarities between near-death experiences and a class of epileptic events known as the complex partial seizure. These seizures often begin with an aura, like the bright light, and can be followed Mm. with an unusual taste, smells, bodily feelings, deja vu, depersonalization, so those out-of-body experiences, and of course, the signature ecstatic feeling that we have come to associate with these near-death experiences. And neurologists can actually induce this ecstatic feeling by electrically stimulating parts of the cortex called the insula in the epileptic patients who have electrodes planted in their brains. Hmm. Where do I get these? Oh, <laughs> where do I get these uh, these electrodes? It'd send me off into La La Land every once in a while. That wouldn't be so bad. No, definitely wouldn't. And I got a much more less invasive way for you to reach that same effect. Because let's face it, not all of us want to get electrodes in our brains. But no fear, we can all get a little taste of what it feels like to die by taking the hallucinogen DMT. I've heard this before. So these are both coming from studies that were published in Frontiers in Psychology. And this particular one found many similarities between near-death experiences and the experiences of people who are taking DMT. So no need to wait around for a few more decades to see what it's like to die. You can go out and get a taste of the dying experience today. Try (laughs) DMT wherever it's sold. I always said, I was like, my brain is not happy enough. I'm certain that I would have a bad trip. I would be the one that was having the outer body experience and freaking the fuck out because I'm just like not accepting enough things. Like, this is new. This is scary. I would totally have a bad trip. I'm... 
think I'm going to have to pass on experiencing dying today. Thank you, Rachel, but no thanks. Okay, well, it'll be there whenever you're ready. <laughs> I'm right there with you because if my experimentation with any other kinds of drugs will show, I'm like very paranoid and I get like really worked up. So I just have to Same. have that in my mindset that when I am dying and I'm experiencing death, just be like, Rachel, chill out. This is death. Roll with it. You're, you're good. Yeah. Make the best of it. You're only going to do it once. Yeah, I mean, unless you're one of these near-death experience people. So while science might feel like a bit of a fun killer coming in here to ruin the party of eternal life and saying that these experiences aren't the great beyond, they're just a natural part of the process, I believe our worlds are of our own making. So because we experience something, it's real to us. Or because our brain believes we're experiencing something, it's real to us. And another study in the frontiers in psychology found that these memories relived in a near-death experience are actually, quote-unquote, realer in the sense that they're more vivid and the folks who've experienced them can describe them in greater detail than imagined events. So they take these people who've had these near-death experience, they ask them to describe a made-up event. And what they experienced when they were close to dying was more vivid. They're able to talk about it in better detail and call out more things specifically than the events that they were asked to made up. And this was also true for real memories they had. So for those who were going through this near-death experience, those scenes were, were real to them. They were there, whether it was reliving their childhood or walking into a beautiful meadow on a sunny day. Their brains believed they were there. So it was much clearer than either the made-up or their actual memories that they had from years past. Yes. And if I, we're going to throw some theology in there, I think that goes to show that it's something something's different about this whether it's again the unique way that our brain dies and really imprints or it's something from the beyond which either way again this was a little bit of a comforting piece here so it's a way of saying even though we don't know what it is it feels real so it could be if heaven is just the last couple seconds of consciousness if they feel real. If they feel long, like we talked about dreams happening over a couple mm -hmm. seconds, but feeling like they take up hours, maybe eternal life is just those last couple moments. And yeah. then you don't even really register after that. So that's just my kind of spin on it. And then finally, if we're going to really sprinkle a little bit of mystery onto these near-death experiences, there is always a piece of these experiences that science will never be able to explain, that they live outside the world of scientifically possible. Bruce Grayson, he's like the near-death experience guy. He wrote a book called After, and he is a doctor who's dedicated a significant portion of his life to studying near-death experiences. Cool. He found that in some of the cases of people experiencing these near-death experiences, their brain is inactive. So they're dead. Yes. They're dead, dead. They've reached that medical brain death, but they're describing their near-death experiences. Some of them are able to describe what was happening in the room while they were legally dead. So it exists outside this world of science. And Grayson, the author here, calls into question the idea of the mind and its relationship to our brains. 
So our mind is our self, our personality, mm-hmm. what makes us us. And because people are able to have their mind existing outside of biological death, it calls into question, is our mind a separate entity from our brain? And if so, what is it? And more importantly, where is it? Well, you I mean, you you know the the theological answer to this question. Oh, definitely. Is of course the soul. Yes. That's that's what everyone says. And where is it? Well, who the hell knows? Nobody can see it on an MRI. I did look briefly at some notes on this guy in the early 1900s who tried to weigh people. I've heard about that. Yeah, death. there's like yeah. some weight that vanishes, right? 21 grams. But apparently it was a very unscientific study and everyone called bullshit on it. I'm like, well, then why aren't we doing it again? I'm curious. There was no. And then we tried it again and saw it was bullshit. I don't know. I mean, it's the same as anything that's biological in there is an animation that is beyond everything that we can explain. You you have a memory bank that is not included if you were to dissect a human body. You can't lay out its memories one by one. It's in the brain. We know that it exists inside the brain, but... What specific synapse includes your memories of Christmas mornings? You can't ascribe a place for everything. And then this is another thing that I thought was interesting. I read somewhere years and years ago that the human brain and and our study of psychology is will we ever really be able to fully understand our brains? Because in order to do so, don't you kind of have to be beyond your brain Mm -hmm. like you have to really be an outside observer to fully understand the inner workings of such a complicated organ which we would never be able to do an ant would never be able to understand how they all work together and interact and share that knowledge because it just is it just yeah it's like asking a fish to describe water be like what yeah And so that's the kind of thing with these near-death experiences, especially when we're looking at them like, what's it like to die? Are they really just the winding down of our brain, the ending of life, or are they the beginning of something else? Only one way to find out. No, just a spoiler alert. (laughs) Only one way to find out. Tune in after this break. Oh, wait, no, we don't have any more breaks. We're, we're going to die and we're going to come back and we're going to tell you what it's all about. No, no. but We're going to do some near-death experiences, come back and podcast about it. Well, that's no what they way. say when they talk about the euphoria. It, that's why people do the erotic asphyxiation, right? Because it oh. makes you feel good. Or people who do skydiving or bungee jumping, mm-hmm. that adrenaline rush is enjoyable. So, I mean, there is something to it there as well. But all in all, you know, sex sounds, cunnilingus, those have actually made me kind of bummed when I finished them. But I will say in this case, this research was pretty uplifting. I am not going to lie. It is It is uplifting. I agree. And I don't agree that the other ones are, are super depressing. They're a little depressing, but not super depressing. For women, it was not ideal. Diff- yeah, it's our differing perspectives on the male-female dynamic that didn't make it super depressing for me, but... This one is definitely uplifting. I agree. I think this is one we can all rally behind. Yeah, we're all going to die. But the process itself, it doesn't sound so bad, really. And if we've learned anything from the near-death experiences, the positive ones, 
if you go in with the right mindset, it can actually be mm-hmm. pretty peaceful and releasing. I've heard that also freezing to death is one of the best ways to die. Well, you get naked, so that's yeah, that's fun. Yeah, you start to get really, really hot, and you'll take off all your clothes. <laughs> and it's like uh, euphoric, apparently. Mm, once you're death. naked, exiting the world the way you came in. A lot of the ways, dying is not so bad. So, okay, this didn't really change my perspective on what happens after, but at least hearing that it can be a very spiritual and one with the universe, um, kumbaya, <laughs> yeah, experience. It, it's definitely made the whole concept of dying or the process of dying a lot less frightening in itself. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it just reinforced the idea that I want to be aware of what's happening when it does happen. Granite, that's always the can you have your cake and eat it too? Because if you're conscious, your brain could have kept living if your body hadn't failed. But do you want to keep your body living to the point where your brain isn't there anymore? Anyways, it's, you know, there's it's not always perfect. But one of those ways is one of the better than dying tomorrow before your time. But I will say, talking about dying, as this is my plug, please, please, please die at home if possible. One of the stats that I uncovered during this research is that 50% of Americans will die in the ICU. And that's not my preference. I don't know. Is that your preference? Hell no. Hell no. Yeah. You don't want to die in a crowded hospital room, folks. But you have to communicate that before you actually get to the point of dying. So I'm going to I'm going to be brave today. I'm going to stay up here as my living will and testimony online <laughs> on the Internet and say that if it's a notary, if medicine can't do anything else for me, just let me go home and die at my house and poop in my own bed. <laughs> the problem is that it usually happens fast. They're doing everything they can to save you. And then it gets to this tipping point where they're like, there's nothing more that we can do. And if we move you, you are going to die on the way home. Oh, that's better than the hospital. I, really? I, you think dying in an ambulance is better than the hospital? I just like minivan. Stick me in the back. I always fall asleep really well on car trips, <laughs> road trips. So just let me go there. Anything's better than a hospital. But I think it comes down to the point of like having to say when you're done. So you do have to be able to articulate that, not just on a podcast when you're 29, <laughs> when you're actually in the situation and say when enough is enough and transition from pure medical care to hospice or like maintenance care so just be aware of that and make sure your loved ones know what you would prefer because if you don't want to die in a room with seven other people and all this commotion and stress around you you have to be able to talk about it and be able to decide everybody should get to die on their own terms i mean and that's an interesting thing that calls to mind that what is better a prolonged illness is something that everyone is like no i don't want it but you also have plenty of time though then to say i'm done i want to be at home in hospice care whereas if there's some sort of acute illness that comes on pretty fast you're stuck in that other situation where you're in the ICU they're doing everything they can and then they're like we're done and you can't you don't have the the energy to be moved yeah so uh, really it's just pick your poison I guess I don't know you want to squeeze every moment out of life not thinking about how you're gonna die or do you want to know that you're going to die but then have the time to die the way that you want that's up to you 
But at the, the same point is like, at least make your intentions clear. Because also, if you have a family, if you have kids, just having it in writing, your preferences is going to make their lives a whole lot easier, make your dying experience easier on yeah. them because they're not going to have to make decisions. But And also not keep you on life life support if you don't want to be on life support. And then you can use your organs to save other people if that's what you want, which is why those wills and testaments are very useful, especially to people who are organ donors. And we're not even lawyers, so... There you go. We're not. <laughs> this is all an elaborate two-year plan to like feed our lawyer will estate business. Feed our juris doctorate. Yeah, just like yeah. So oh, by can, the way, uh, Laura and I we met at work, and that work was being attorneys who wrote wills. So if you need anybody, <laughs> give us a call. Give us a call. One eight hundred Impolite Society. It's the beep and beep <laughs> practice. Law firm? I don't call it a practice. Anyways, so we talked a lot about death, biological process, the experience of folks who've had it. We can do all the research. We can study biology. We can interview everybody who's ever had a near-death experience to try to figure out what it's really like to die and what happens when we die and after. But really, there's only one way to find out. And no one better be doing that for a long time, folks. We need the listeners. That's what I was just going to say. I thought we weren't self-depreciating anymore. Yes, we're not self-deprecating. But if God was like, I'm going to cut you into a million pieces, I'm like, I got some places for you to start. <laughs> here, 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 here. Ghibli parts really of my thighs. Small. Yeah, and you could make the cuts really small. Yeah. So you could technically cut me into a million pieces. I have more than I'd a million fat cells, God. Oh, yeah. just You can split an atom. You can split a fat exactly. cell. Exactly. Get to slicing. <laughs> Slicing and dicing. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for listening. And that is it for us. I think we've talked about death as much as we can for now. So now we got to get back to the practice of living, right? What's it like to live? That's a podcast we're creating every single day. What's it like to live in this rude, disgusting world? If you want to find out, keep listening to Impolite Society. <laughs> and if you just can't wait another two weeks for the next episode, you can follow us on all the socials. Laura, where can they find us? They can find us on Instagram. You can find us on TikTok. You can find us on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook. We are the Impolite Society Facebook page to look us up and have some laughs there with us. Or you can always send us a rude question at rude at impolitesocietypodcast.com. And let us know. What are you wondering about? We're happy to uh, poke around, tell you what it's all about. Let us know your rude questions or tell us your near-death experiences. I want to hear. Oh, I'd love to hear those. That yeah. would be fantastic. And you would get your whole episode just for you because that would be phenomenal. Anyway, so you can get a hold of us. We're dying to hear from you. <laughs> so give us a little biz buzz. And, of course, remember, stay curious, our fellow deviants. And never stop marching to the beat of your own drum. Bump, ba dum, bump, bump, bump. It's like a CPR. <laughs> do, do, do. Yeah, this is staying alive. Staying alive. But now it's uh, to the beat uh, uh. of the Impolite Society theme song. Do, 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 do. That's not our theme song. Anyways, <laughs> I think we gotta stop. We're dead. We're dead. This episode is dead. Call it's, it. dead. it's brain dead, high brain, low dead, high brain, low brain, all dead. 
encyclopedia. 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 <laughs> <laughs> 